being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong that's great pluto press they've had some really interesting books so that's cool yeah i um i hats off to them for taking this this is a fairly controversial manuscript and they they did not hesitate at all to do it yeah no definitely hats off to them all right Today, I'm joined by Rob McKenzie, who attended University of Iowa and then worked at Ford for 28 years as an assembler, industrial electrician, and full-time union representative. He became president of United Auto Workers 879 at the Ford plant and was re-elected to that position three times. He joined the International United Auto Workers as, as a regional servicing representative for Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, and was elected to serve on the Minnesota State AFL-CIO Executive Board for 12 years. Upon retiring, he wrote this book that we're going to talk about today, which I would easily call one of my favorite books I've read about the Cold War, the CIA, and labor history. And I do want to give a shout out to my listener, Danny, who specifically recommended this book, as well as the Twitter user AFL. Well, you know who you are. So let me just introduce today, Mr. McKenzie. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and uh, thanks for having me here. Yeah, definitely. No, like this was legitimately, I wouldn't say fun to read because that almost sounds flippant, but like this was as good as like many of the books I've read on this these topics. So thank you for writing it, first of all. Well, it was really a, a labor of love for me. And I started out thinking, well, maybe I'd do a four or five page paper and I would need to get somebody in academia to help me with that. Um, but I, as I went along, it seemed like every rock I picked up, there's all sorts of stuff crawling around and a really important story here that for some reason had never really been told. So it was a, a learning experience for me too. And actually I, I am greatly enjoyed working on this. Yeah, no, I definitely know the feeling of like looking at something, you pick it up and it's almost like a log and there's just like a bunch of bugs crawling underneath. And then I'll just say by way of introducing the book, right? I know a lot of my listeners are familiar with a, a lot of the CIA side of what we're going to talk about, but really understudied, I feel like, at least on like, the Twitter, you know, space that a lot of my listeners are in, there's not as much of like an understanding of labor history, like period, but also how it intersects with this, you know, intelligence agency milieu. So like, and particularly not in Latin America, because I know that a lot of people might know something about Chile, they might know some stuff about the dirty wars, but they don't necessarily know, you know, how some of the labor activists were compromised and things like things of this nature. And specifically, I didn't know anything about the Ford attack that we will talk about. So that also will be very interesting to learn and how it interacted with NAFTA. That I think was just mind blowing. So let's definitely introduce it. So the title of the book. Um, The name of the book is El Golpe, U.S. Labor, the CIA and the coup at Ford in Mexico. El Golpe means the coup in Spanish, and the first labor activists in Mexico I interacted with referred to this event as that, and it really needed a name just for brevity and ease of handling, so I I chose El Golpe as the name of the book and the event that took place at the Ford Assembly Plant in 1990. 
I started, I had been involved in support work for these Mexican workers in 1990. Our local was very involved and a few others were too. And in 1996, I was a meeting for the Coalition for Justice in the Maquiladores. And at that meeting, I was approached by, you know, a high level staff person from the AFL-CIO who had just, uh, he's worked for John Sweeney, who had just been elected president of the AFL-CIO. And he told me they believed the American Institute for Free Labor Development had been involved in the events at Quetitlan. Now, I vaguely knew something about that, and I knew it was linked to the CIA. And I asked him, was that linked to the CIA? And he nodded his head. And they didn't know what happened. He said they were trying to find out. So I I tried to investigate that, got absolutely nowhere. I was the vice president of my local at the time. I couldn't get anywhere and looking into that. But just before I retired in 2016, I was interviewed for a book that a local historian was doing. And he was asking about the support work we'd done in 1990. I told him I'd heard that Afeld had been involved in that. And he said, well, why didn't you ever look into that? I said, well, it was extremely difficult, but and he kind of challenged me to do that. So when I retired the next month, I said, well, I've got lots of time. I've got lots of connections. I am going to look into this. And I always felt that uh, I could prove that Afeld had been involved. But then I said, well, what does what was Afeld? What was its relationship to the CIA? What was its relationship to the AFL-CIO? That was never clear to me. So I began the research project. And it took me about five and a half years before I submitted a manuscript. And I never had an intention of writing a book until I couldn't find anyone else who would do it. So I jumped into the arena of trying to learn how to write a book. Yeah, no, that's so admirable, like... I definitely, I mean, to a much lesser extent, like started doing a podcast simply because I wanted to like hear the stuff I wanted to hear about. Right. And like the idea of like, no one wrote this book, I'm going to do it. Like that's, that's very cool. So. And I really believe there was a story that really needed to be told Mm. both about what happened at Ford Quintetland and what was the relationship of the AFL CIO and these institutes to the CIA. And then once I found out that it was so clear that they were CIA fronts, why did labor put up with this? And then I also began investigating the history of the debate and labor over this. And there was one. uh, And I try to report on that too, because there were always people trying to change this, trying to get a change, trying to confront the leadership. And uh, I think that's an interesting story too. Yeah, no, this book both tells the story of, you know, those Mexican workers and what happened to them, but it also just really lays out, like, U.S. labor history um, in such a illuminating way. I was thinking, by way of getting into it, that we could, if we could maybe go through a couple of these names and organizations and just sort of, like, lay out the cast of characters, as it were. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea. I, I really wrote this in mind with, you know, the workers I knew and the UAW and other unions. This was my audience. So I, in the book, I do assume some knowledge of that. So I think that's a good idea to go over that. So you have the American Federation of Labor, which was a federation. That means it's comprised of individual component unions. So there's a union for blacksmiths and one for millwrights and one for plumbers, electricians eventually. So they're organized on a craft basis, meaning around a particular skill. 
So an employer at one work site might have four or five different unions in the AFL that he would have to negotiate a labor agreement with. Now, and that was formed in the 1885, mid-1880s. That left out millions of unskilled workers who were on assembly lines, textile mills, meat packing, who the AFL really felt were too ignorant to unionize and really had pretty much given up trying to unionize them. And then in the 1930s, John L. Lewis, who was the president of the mine workers, left the AFL and started the committee and industrial organizations to organize these unskilled workers. And that eventually became the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And they had great success organizing mass production workers and unskilled workers, semi-skilled workers. In the early 1950s, those two organizations merged into the AFL-CIO. And that's usually the main labor body I'm talking about in this book. Yeah, no, that's really good. Now, not to get us too sidetracked, but um, so that generally speaking, the AFL are more of the skilled labor and then the CIO, at least historically, was like more of the unskilled labor. Is that the general? Yeah, absolutely. And when the CIO formed in the 30s, it was really quite politically progressive, um, militant, um, much further to the left politically than the AFL. And that uh, pretty much continued the case throughout the existence of the organization. And the first big union that the CIO, first big union that joined was the UAW and it had mm-hmm. success in organizing. And, um, you know, they had quite a history of progressive politics and um, really plays a path in winning a lot of a lot of gains for workers during the early decades. Yeah, well, the United Auto Workers, that's another one that would be good to go over them and a few of their players, I guess. Yeah, well, that was the union I was in. I was an active member for 38 years. And and I would have to say we we get into that in the book mm-hmm. because the early debate about Afeld, the Ruthers, especially Victor Ruther, who was one of the, founders. He, he was one of the leaders of the Flint sit-down strike in 1936, where the workers occupied GM plants in Flint, Michigan, and sat down, a famous sit-down strike. The National Guard was finally caused in to separate them and the vigilantes and local police and really forced GM to settle. So Victor was a leader in that. His brother, Walter, was the really one of the main figures in the history of the, the UAW. I mean, they had an interesting background. Their father was a German immigrant and a socialist. And as, as young boys took him to visit Eugene V. Jabs, who was in jail for opposing World War I. When they were young men, they traveled around the world and worked for an auto plant in the Soviet Union for a while just to see what that was like. And when they returned, they began trying to help organize this United Automobile Workers Union and had great success. Eventually, Walter was elected president in the late 40s, and he appointed Victor uh, to be the international affairs director, and he eventually became international affairs director for the whole CIO in the 50s. Yeah, no, definitely reading this book, they are two of the figures that do come across as like, I guess, heroic. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. When I was looking through the uh, CIA's declassified files, I found these articles that Victor had been interviewed for in the 60s. And one of them said, you know, I did my best to raise the lid on this, meaning CIA involvement in labor. Someday it will all come out. And I had met Victor a couple of times in his 80s um, and it never did come out. 
And I said, mm -hmm. well, here's something I can do to, you know, make his vision and his efforts come true. So yeah, he, he was truly a hero. And Walter did a lot of great things. I mean, there's people that have mixed opinions of Walter and I was one of those for a while, but today I really think he's probably the best national labor leader the U S ever produced. Interesting. I was going to ask you about that because yeah, that's, that's very cool. So you met Victor, but you didn't meet Walter. Well, Walter died in 1970 in the plane crash, which I also go into and yes. I'm still working on that because that was, I mean, I thought I knew a lot about UAW history when I started this project and I knew Walter died in a plane crash in 1970. I did not know there was any mystery involved in this, but actually there is a tremendous, I mean, no, no matter what way I look at this, what angle, it was an assassination. There's just no question in my mind about that. And uh, I go into that in the book and it really the motive for that was they were fighting with the CIA over their involvement in labor and had gone public with it and actually left the AFL-CIO over this was probably the last straw, the main issue, and uh, were forming a rival labor federation to challenge the AFL-CIO. And then this all came to an end and May 8th, 1970, when his private jet crashed in northern Michigan. Yeah, I mean, that is very directly like a direct challenge and a real threat. So I definitely can see that. I have had a couple people that I trust tell me that I should look into that. I was so happy to see that whole story come up in your book, because like you lay out about as much evidence as I've ever heard and I'm sure there's more out there, but like, yeah, I would love to hear what else, you know. Yeah, no, I've made some progress since I turned my manuscript on that. But again, mm -hmm. when I found that there were 200 pages of documents on the crash, the FBI had not released in the 1980s and claimed a national security exemption to the Freedom from Information Act. I said, well, now that says a lot. Uh, 200 pages, that is a lot of material. Yeah, especially when there there wouldn't be like a reasonable, like non-suspicious reason for doing that, I don't think. No, no, I don't either. All right. And I will say for the listener's sake, um, we will probably do a tally at the end of the episode, but there is going to be a theme of people meeting untimely ends uh, throughout this whole story. I guess maybe we could mention at least... Uh, real quick, some of the top AFL-CIO guys like George Meany uh, and so on. Um, yeah, George Meany was uh, president of the AFL-CIO from, I think, sometime in the 40s till 1979. He had uh, dropped out of high school at the age of 16, and uh, this was, you know, some tough economic times, and become um, a plumber apprentice. And he completed his apprenticeship at the age of 21 and got elected to an office in his local union. And he spent the next, he, he retired at 86. All that time, he was either a full-time union officer or staff person for, for a union. And um, he was uh, extremely conservative, I think would be fair to say about George Meany. Um, it's hard to even know where to begin, but he had a very conservative view of unionism. Uh, you know, I, sometimes we call this business unionism, where all you talk about is immediate workplace needs and labor contracts, sale of labor power. 
any kind of broader social goals or social efforts are to be excluded. I mean, one told, time told a group that he had never been part of a labor union that had been on strike and he wouldn't be part of a labor union that went on strike. And he was saying that like a selling point, right? Right. It's like, you know, this is why you should like unions because this is the kind of unions that I believe in. Um, I think one of his most famous quotes was in the 1972 campaign for president where they were screening candidates. And he said, let me make sure I get this right. We, we interviewed the Jacks who looked like Jills and smelled like Johns. Very famous quote, talking about the McGovern reformers in the Democratic Party. And I would say much of the time in his life, he was to the right of the U.S. foreign policy. He was more conservative on foreign policy issues than even the CIA was a lot of the, the time. So he was uh, the president of the AFL-CIO until 1979, when he was replaced by the guy he had supported for secretary treasurer in 1965, Lane Kirkland. Now, that was another area. I mean, I, my career somewhat overlapped with Kirkland, and I knew a little about him. But when I tried to research him, there was surprisingly little available. But he really is a very difficult character for me to explain. And I'll just give you a little of his bio before I tell you what I think of him. Please do, because he he glows in the dark, as the kids say these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I didn't know this or anything mm -hmm. about it. I didn't talk to anyone else who did. Um, he was from a Southern planter aristocracy in South Carolina. Uh, his great, great grandfather had 156 slaves, according to the 1860 census, and he had joined the Confederate cavalry and died in battle in 1864. So when Sherman's Union Army came through the area, Harriet Tubman, who was traveling with him, led a convoy of five steamships to the Kirkland plantation and freed the 156 slaves and brought him back to Sherman. Some of them joined the army. Really? Now, I said, well, you know, and his great grandfather on his mother's side had been in the provisional Confederate government and signed the Articles of Secession. So I said, well, you know, he came from a background like that. What, what did he believe? Well, he referred to the Civil War as a war of Northern aggression his whole life. That was in his obituary in the New York Times. So obviously to me, oh, well, there's a little more about his background. So his father was a cotton broker, started a business as a cotton broker. And, and in antebellum times, this was called a cotton factor. And one of their jobs was to buy and sell slaves for the plantation owners. So that's the kind of business his father was in in the 1820s and went bankrupt during the Depression. And Lane was sent to live with an uncle who was a manager at a textile mill, very anti-union, bragged about keeping the union out. And, you know, he spent some time with them. We don't know exactly how many years he spent with them. But at the age of 18 in 1840, I mean, 1940, Kirkland tried to enlist in the army and he was too young. They wouldn't take him. So he signed up for a uh, training program for the Merchant Marine. And it took two years. When he graduated from that, he uh, served on deck in the Merchant Marine throughout World War II. When the war was over, he came back to Washington and worked for the Navy at the hydrological station and began taking classes at Georgetown and night school. Well, very quickly, he changed to a full-time program. 
And that program, his biographer, his very sympathetic biographer says, was a special program for students interested in foreign affairs. <laughs> and what's also interesting is there was no GI Bill for the Merchant Marine. So how he paid for this full-time school is, I'm not clear how that was paid for. As soon as he graduated from that, he went to work for the AFL-CIO Research Department in 1948. And that was the year the CIA began to funnel large sums of money into the Free Trade Union Committee in Europe to dispense to anti-communist unions and anti-communist causes in Europe. And I don't see any explanation of why this guy with this background decided to commit his whole life to labor unions. It does make sense to me that he became a government intelligence agent and they wanted to keep track on what was going on in the AFL since they were giving them all this money. That makes the most sense to me. Now, I don't quite say that in the book, but I do give his background. And again, I think more research needs to be done about who this guy was because I didn't find anything in his career with, that would show he had a big break with the CIA. He was on the uh, Committee of the Clear and Present Danger advocating for bigger defense spending. He would, played a major role in funding the Solidarity Union in Poland that helped overthrow the, helped overthrow the Polish communist government. And you know he was the main figure in convincing Meany not to endorse, endorse George McGovern in 1972. And that was a big break in labor, not to endorse the Democratic candidate. So he's a figure that really labor, some labor historians need to take a long, hard, unblinking look at. And I don't believe that they have at this, up to this point. Yeah. When I was reading the Kirkland section, I could not handle it. Like, man, what an interesting guy. Yeah. Um, another thing that I really appreciated, and I think you addressed this relatively early on in the book, which I was just like fist pumping, like you talk about Jay uh, Lovestone and like how, like just the whole Lovestone operation, like, holy cow. Yeah, there's another really interesting figure, which I vaguely recognized the name before I started in this, but I didn't know anything about him. Uh, he was... Um, he played a major role in formulating AFL-CIO foreign policy for 30 years. In his background, in 1929, he was general secretary of the U.S. Communist Party, and he got involved in international communist politics, and he supported a guy named Bukharin, who was the head of the Comintern, and who was engaged in a big battle with Stalin. So Stalin called Lovestone and nine other people from the Central Committee of the U.S party back to Russia and removed Lovestone from office for being a right deviationist. He let the other nine people go back, but he didn't let Lovestone leave, uh, probably because they couldn't find anybody who wanted him because they were afraid he'd cause problems. I don't know. But he escaped Russia with the help of a friend who we find out later was actually an FBI agent. And I don't think Lovestone probably knew that at the time. But so he came back, formed an opposition communist party. Uh, which we usually is called the Lovestoneites, and that sort of faded away. And he got deeply involved with the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and its president, David Dubensky. Now, Dubensky gave him $100,000 and sent him to help the president of the UAW at that time, Homer Martin, purge the communists from the UAW. $100,000 in 1930 is a lot of money. 
Now, in that battle with Martin, the Ruthers sided with the communists. That alliance didn't last long, but so we had the Ruthers, the communists opposed to Lovestone and Martin. Um, Victor Ruther and his wife Sophie were staff people in the UAW. They both got fired by Martin during this period. Uh, John L. Lewis eventually threw in with uh, the Ruthers and the Communist Party people and those sympathetic to him or associated with him and defeated Martin. And Lovestone was sent packing. But the Ruthers never forgave Lovestone for that. And so Lovestone went back and then became the executive director of the Free Trade Union Committee in 1944, which the AFL-CIO, it was just the AFL at that point, set up to combat communist unions in Europe. Um, and over the course of those years, they had run-ins with Victor, who, who knew they were taking CIA money and really didn't approve. And they, they clashed many times on that. Now, in 1966, there was an article appeared in Ramparts magazine that showed that a technical assistance program run with Michigan State University in South Vietnam had been a cover for CIA activities. So that may not sound like much now, but it was a big thing in 1960s because people really didn't know this was happening. And a lot of other exposés came out quickly after about National Student Association. And yeah, all those Rampart articles really just blew everything out of the water there for a while. It did. And, and Victor took that as an opportunity to expose the American Institute for Free Labor Development, which had been founded in 62, and really linked it to the AFL-CIO and the CIA. And that really caused a dust up. He did that in an interview with the Los Angeles Times in May of 1966. So that set off a big fight in the AFL-CIO Executive Council in a meeting in August, which Walter had been told they weren't even going to discuss Aceveld. It was too sensitive. It was causing too many problems. They would just discuss foreign policy. When he got there, they had a resolution ready to go, which was made by a guy named Joe Bierne, who was the president of the Communication Workers Union and had a long history with Afeld. And in 1976, Phil Agee said he was a top CIA collaborator in labor. So here you have a motion being made by someone with that background against Victor Ruther. They didn't mention him by name, but they said the, the campaign of vilification against Afeld. So again, to me, that is the CIA suppressing dissent and labor over what was happening in foreign policy. So after that meeting, I mean, Walter went back and he didn't have an executive board meeting till December of 66, but then he got his UAW executive board to agree to leave the AFL-CIO and they stopped paying dues uh, right after that in January and were eventually kicked out for non-payment of dues in around 68. And uh, also, what was Lovestone's uh, connection to James Jesus Angleton? Yeah, that was an interesting, an interesting one for me, too, because there really is a great biography written about Lovestone. Different than a lot of the CIA agents, Lovestone was not bound by secrecy. At least he didn't think he was. He turned all his papers over to Stanford University. And when those were open, a guy wrote a great biography about Lovestone. And he has a chapter called Gem and Jay, meaning James Angleton and Jay Lovestone. So they had a very close personal relationship. I mean, 
Angleton really wanted somebody in labor where he could find out what was going on. And he really found a soulmate in Lovestone. Lovestone kept his office in New York, um, meaning he let him do that. But when he was in Washington for meetings, he would stay at Angleton's home. Uh, and in 1964, they got a new CIA director, Colby, who had an investigation done about what was going on here and found out that Angleton had been paying Lovestone. And that he'd been able to keep that a secret even inside the CIA. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, that was a CIA investigation that showed that. And he found the same thing that Meany had found. Meany had suspicions and was found a check designed for an intermediary is actually um, Lovestone's romantic interest, his longtime girlfriend, the check made out to her. And he knew that was paid from the CIA and it was from the CIA. And he forced Lovestone out in 74 because of this. Mm. So again, I don't think he had a lot of uh, problems with Lovestone's politics, but he didn't like his people being double paid is what my research has shown. It was really aggravated him to find people getting double paid. (laughs) Yeah, more of a loyalty to him type of thing, right? Right, right. Very interesting. And then, does it make sense to talk about the uh, Afelt uh, and who was, I guess, in charge of that now? The history of Afelt? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, because it's kind of murky. I, you know, the cover story for this was this Joe Bierne, mm-hmm. the communications workers, was on a flight in Latin America, and it just came to him in a flash that, well, you need to get these people a different view of the world. Um, <laughs> both both, both um, Kirkland credited him with the idea, and so did uh, Serafino Romaldi in his, his uh, autobiography. Now, the actual truth of the matter was, and there's been some, a couple of really good papers written on this, again, things that not hardly anybody has the opportunity to see. There was a paper done in the 50s about the importance of coordinating the efforts between State Department, Defense Department, Intelligence Agency, U.S. Agency for International Development, and U.S. Uh, Information Agency. They needed to coordinate their efforts in this labor struggle in the Cold War. And um, in 1958, Bierne ran a prototype test program where he went to Latin America got a group of Latin American unionists, brought them back to Washington to the communications workers headquarters and did a training program for them about the, the, you know, what U.S. unions about and, you know, the importance of capitalism and democracy and how to fight communists uh, in your union. So that really became the core thing that AFL does when it was finally officially organized in 1962. And um, the head, the, the president of it was Meany, the mm-hmm. secretary treasurer was Bierne, and then they also wanted to include a business component to this. Now, there's questions about why they did this. I think it's both because they knew the U.S. Congress was funding this, didn't completely trust unions, so they wanted to put some business people in there. And also in Latin America, they were dealing with a lot of right-wing forces who didn't necessarily trust Unions, so they wanted to include a business component. So a whole lot of uh, CEOs ran it. The the chairman of the board was a guy named uh, Peter Grace, who ran a corporation called W R Grace and Company, and he had a long history of cooperating with the CIA and religious endeavors in Latin America. 
And so he was the chairman, Meany was the president, and the really important job, because who was really running it, was the executive director. So the first executive director was a guy named Serafino Romaldi, who had been an Italian who'd immigrated to the U.S. and become active in Latin America during World War II, trying to convince Italian communities communities not to support the Mussolini government. Mm -hmm. And he spent his whole year, the rest of his life, working with U.S. intelligence. Now, Phil Agee, in his book, Inside the Company, identified Romaldi as the chief CIA agent in Latin America for labor. And I, I don't think there's any question that's what he was. So he was the executive director of AFELD. Now, he retired in 65 um, under kind of mysterious circumstances. And he was replaced by a guy named William C. Doherty Jr., who was another. Now, he, he remained executive director for another 30 years. And when I decided to try to find out what AFELD was, I decided to focus my efforts on researching William C. Doherty Jr. Yeah, and like when I was reading the sections on Doherty Sr. and Jr., I just could not believe it. Like they're also staggeringly spooky and weird. Yeah, I mean his father. I, I can I can understand him. Some he was you know from southern Ohio around Cincinnati and got involved in a strike as a teenager and was in trouble. They were going to arrest him or something. He joined the army. And this was 1919, I think, 1919. Yeah. And so he was sent to Vladivostok with the U.S. Expeditionary Force, which was there to confront the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution and support the white movement. Now, even the articles, both his obituary and what his son said about that, is still classified what they were doing there. But he became a... Uh, radio technician, a chief radio technician for three years and was in Russia most of the time. Being in radio, that's like very close to like signals. That's like very much like intelligence territory, right? Yeah, very advanced technology too for the time, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it'd be like being in computers or something today. So he came back though, but he ended up getting a job with the Postal Service. He needed to find a job. And this I will say about Doherty Sr., he pounded the pavement as a letter carrier for 18 years, and he got mm-hmm. elected to the president of his local union, got elected to the president of the National Union. And in the 50s, I believe he, was, he became the youngest vice president ever of the AFL-CIO. But in that time, you know, during the war and after the war, he threw in with Meany and Dubinsky and the, these uh, right wing cold warriors in the AFL-CIO. And he was um, involved, at least by some former agent say he was getting his expenses paid in post-war Europe by the CIA. And when this reporter for the Wall Street Journal asked him about that, he, he wouldn't deny it. He said, well, you know, I, I gave, only gave money on behalf of the organization I was representing. Well, that doesn't really say much. To, well, what was that? <laughs> so what, what, what seems so common among these CIA agents, there's so much nepotism. I, you know, it looks a lot like, perhaps labor unions and other types of organizations that that's common. But his, his son, William C. Doherty Jr., was a college student, went to American University, served during the war. But once the war got over, he worked for uh, allied forces in Germany, uh, building up the anti-communist unions. He returned to Washington and then 
and then he has he got married, played some football, finished his degree, but then he goes to Georgetown. Well, first he he got a part time job as a security guard, and after six months as a temporary part time twenty four year old security guard, he got elected president. Well, I didn't know if he's elected. He became the president of a thousand member union. Now th- that is really odd to me. Uh, there must have there was something going on. He only held that position for a few months and then he went on to Georgetown. Georgetown keeps coming up. <laughs> it does. I actually spend a few paragraphs on Georgetown. You can't get their undergraduate records for these guys, but his he he said he was in law school and I checked in that and they did say he enrolled in law school in 1951 and withdrew in April of 1953. So this is before the semester's over. He dropped out and went to Europe and became the assistant director of um, the International Confederation of Free Trade Union Regional Activities. So that's a big title for a young guy. Uh, I don't really know what he was doing there, but he had quite the title. And he did that for um, 1955, and then he went to Mexico and worked for the Postal Telegraph and Telephone International. And according to his interview, he said he was the first American to establish a trade union presence in Mexico. <laughs> um, real quick, what was the, uh, was it Doherty Sr. or Jr.? Or which one of them was uh, working for General Lucius Clay? That was Sr. Uh, he worked mm-hmm. directly with him in the, you know, labor union field in West Germany. All the unions had been destroyed by Hitler. I, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he gave them the May 1st as a holiday and then seized all their offices. So they were really starting from scratch and rebuilding the trade unions. And he assisted in that effort. Now, I don't know much about Clay. It sounds like you may know more about him than I do. I mean, just the general, I mean, he was involved in reconstruction and, you know, the Marshall Plan and everything. Yeah. But yeah, like it just... It's another link to suggest something additional going on, right? Sorry, I cut you off. So you, uh, Doherty Jr. went to Mexico. No, he, stayed, he worked for the Postal Telegraph and Telephone International. So this was an international trade secretariat. And those keep popping up in this story, too. They were formed around 1900 to coordinate between different companies around um, economic issues that they all shared. So like uh, the PTTI would have postal workers, letter carriers, telephone, telegraph. Uh, but during the wars, I mean, both you had World War One and then you had World War II, they were pretty much destroyed. They really existed only in name only in Switzerland, mm-hmm. at least the PTTI. But then after the war, uh, the CIA found these to be a very valuable form of organization for them to engage in labor issues and poured a lot of money into them. So the PTTI, no no question in my mind, was a CIA front group, and uh, Doherty Jr. was an agent. Could I ask you, Mr. McKenzie, so you're saying that uh, a lot of these mail carrier unions uh, had a lot of these specific intelligence agency ties? Well, what I'm saying is that they were affiliates of the, the, the PTTI. Okay. And so I, I, you know, the number of agents, I, I, I really don't know. But the PTTIs, the International Trade Secretariats, there's several of them that show up in this story. Those certainly had a lot of CIA influence. And, and Victor really denounced some of them in the 60s as being mm-hmm. CIA front groups. 
or, you know, in some cases they had had agents working on them and the head of the international trade secretariat didn't even know that they, what they were doing or who they were. So yeah, they had a very murky past, but you know, as Afeld and the other institutes came along, they had so much success with Afeld that they formed the Asian American Free Labor Institute and the African American Labor Center to do the similar types of things in, in those parts of the world. But the, they really, I mean, Doherty and a bunch of these guys had worked for the PTTI before they came to AFL. And in their interviews, you can see they mix up the dates. They're not even sure when they were working for one and when they're working for other, because the job was pretty much the same. Interesting. Now, okay, so like, well, you know, like when you were in the union back in the day and everything, what like what was like the one sentence description of like what is AFL even supposed to be? Right. Because like we talked about like the bureaucratic history, but like the average union guy, what would they think AFELD was for? I'd say the average union guy had never heard of AFELD. Okay. And what, what I, you know, I wasn't sure what it was. I even put a motion in in 2018 to open the files of AFELD. And I called it a branch of the AFL CIO. Mm -hmm. Now, and, you know, I, you could call it that. I don't, I believe what I think Eiffeld was, was created by the government. Mm-hmm. It was managed by the CIA and the AFL-CIO provided cover for that throughout its existence. So technically the AFL-CIO had control because they had some of the top offices, the president and secretary treasurer, though until the early eighties, a businessman was chairman of the board. The question exactly what that was now. So in the 80s, this funding switched for AFL. It had been U.S. Information Agency, U.S. Agency for International Development had funded AFL activities with millions of dollars. But in the early 80s, Reagan decided that we didn't need the CIA doing all these legal, overt political actions. We should turn that over to something else instead of having the CIA do it. And that was a national endowment for democracy was created at that time. And they took over the funding of AFELD. So AFELD would then have to apply for grants, to the NED, and then receive money for specific projects. So there would be gaps between these grants. The AFL-CIO paid these staff people at AFELD for those periods. Now, they may have been getting reimbursed by the government in other ways. I suspect that, though I don't have any proof of that. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, they really were a branch of the AFL-CIO. And when it finally shut down in 96, the AFL-CIO got all their national office records. So that shows there was some official relationship. So there's 4,400 boxes of AFL records at the George Meany Memorial Archives, which are not open to researchers except by special permission, and they very rarely give that. They're not, they're not even organized by file and folder. They're just piled in boxes, because I finally got there, and I spent four days there. So, yeah, I, um, the relationship between AFELD and the AFL-CIO, I, I would be happy to have this AFL-CIO say exactly what that relationship is. I mean, I think today what they call something like that, they might call, well, we have a partnership with the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. which probably is more accurate of what it really was. But during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the AFL-CIO would let these institutes speak on their behalf on international affairs all the time. Yeah, and like I think you said at one point, wasn't like 
the amount that AFL was getting was like comparable amounts of funds to just like the AFL CIO in general or something. Like it was like really huge amounts of money flowing through. In the mid sixties, the budget for AFL was three times the entire budget for the AFL CIO. And most years they got around 20 to $25 million and 98% of that came from the government. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. <laughs> and like, you know, even a lot of people super interested in the Cold War and espionage don't necessarily know about AFL. Like, I read Philip Ag's Inside the Company a couple of years ago, and like, I was like struck by like how much of it was just him talking about labor stuff. Yeah. You know, you think like spies, oh, you're going to spy on some Soviet or something. But like, no, it was like, all infiltrating labor basically and like this yeah. book specifically really contextualized so much of that book that i had read several years ago yeah that was an amazing book when i read that too about two years ago but i think something your um, listeners might be interested in mm-hmm. in my research i kept finding references to a documentary that had been broadcast in pbs in 1980 called on company business have you seen mm-hmm. that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's got interviews with AG, and he talks about the importance of labor in the Cold War struggle. And a lot of that is about labor. So some of these people, Bill Doherty's interview, um, a former CIA agent named Paul Sakwa talks, uh, it says he, he told me that Irving Brown was CIA. And I said, I mean, he knew. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's a fascinating, it's on YouTube. It's well worth watching for somebody who's interested in the subject that's so interesting um real quick could could we talk about a couple of the people on the afeld uh board of trustees and advisory committee because it's so funny the people who are on there yeah and that was really the birthplace of afeld was this labor advisory committee which had been set up in 62 and the, I've only found two papers on that, and they disagree slightly because they use different sources about what, when was the first meeting, when was the second meeting, when did Meany come. But it was, again, those agencies which were needed were to coordinate it. So you had the Secretary of Defense. You had Dean Rusk there, I believe. Yeah. You had McCone was the CIA director. I guess I wouldn't recognize the name of USAID and US Information Agency, but mm-hmm. at, at I believe it was the second meeting, George Meany came. Mm-hmm. And with him, he had Serafino Romaldi and Bill Doherty, who I have no question in my mind, they're a career CIA agent. So those are his people helping him. Now they knew they needed Meany to do this. They had to have a labor cover for this thing to work. And they really got Meany to think he was in charge of this because one of the papers, you know, the, the researcher calls it Meany's committee. So they, but he used Meany's archives as his source. So I think Meany really believed that he was, he was in charge of this thing. But here he's dealing with, you know, these Harvard educated, experienced people that, you know, he was, he was out over his head, but they had a shared interest. I can't see that they really had some huge gap between what they wanted to do with this organization. Um, yeah. And again, after the early 60s, I, I can't find any record of it. I think after they set up Afeld and they, they disappeared <laughs> and it ran on its own. Yeah, just 
That very interesting. And then <laughs> on the board of trustees, uh, I think you mentioned, yeah, Peter Grace, right? Yeah, he was the chairman of the board. Yeah. And I, I saw this and I've only recently been like started paying attention, but he was like the head of the international chamber of commerce. Yeah. And like more and more, I'm realizing how important the chamber of commerce is uh, as an organization, even though it seems like boring or something, but like, yeah. Yeah. And then he, Grace was also a Knight of Malta. Yeah, now I thought I didn't know anything about that. And they trace their roots back to the Knights Hospitaller and Hospitaller in the mm-hmm. Middle Ages. And I found that very interesting. And he had been involved with the CIA and these kind of Catholic movements in Latin America, which really were directed in a lot of ways towards anti communism and against leftist governments. Definitely plugging into the whole like Catholic like strand of fascism for sure. And you know, it was a strong trend in both Doherty's were Catholics, Bierney was a Catholic, Meany was a Catholic. And I think people with that ideology made better warriors in the Cold War than people who really didn't have an ideology. That's what it would seem to me. So interesting. I think that, yeah, I think that observation definitely tracks though. Yeah. Um, and then there were executives for Anaconda, Copper, and Pan, Pan Am, right? Pan American Airways. Those were the most famous names, that, but there were yeah. there must have been a dozen businesses, but those are the most famous companies that I recognize the names of. So I put them in there as examples of who was involved. Yeah, that's quite a group of people at the table with labor. <laughs> Should we talk about just in general terms uh, what Afield got up to in British Guyana? Yeah, there was, that was interesting. Um, that was really the first public blow up for Eiffel. And British Guiana was a British colony. And I think that the key figure here I was looking at was a guy named Chetty Jagan, who had studied in America, married an American woman who'd been active in the Young Communists. And when he went back to British Guiana became active in a lot of labor issues and a lot of uh, efforts to get independence from British colonialism. And he had been elected, the first time he got elected as chief minister of the colony, Churchill had him removed. He just thought he was too far left and had him, he did some time in prison, but he got out and was elected chief minister again in 57 and 59. Uh, he went and met with Kennedy and his meeting with Kennedy, Kennedy on a public record. So there's minutes of this. This is one of those rare things where he tells the CIA to overthrow Jagan. And that's rare that they do that. But there is a record that he did, in fact, tell the CIA to do that. And they really were active. I mean, there was fires, riots, radio stations coming online saying all sorts of crazy things. And as part of this effort, there was a lot of labor involvement. So there's another international trade secretariat called the PSI or the Public Service International, which the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees was involved. And it came out and it was in the New York Times that the president of that union, a guy named Zander, had agreed to turn their international affairs department over to two people he knew were CIA agents. And they got a great deal of money. I think it was 25,000 
a month. Uh, it's in the New York Times article. And they were active in British Guiana organizing a general strike and a dock worker strike to destabilize the country. So there's an excellent paper on this called The Longest General Strike in History Against the Jagan Government. Which, like, that's so interesting to me. Like, the idea both of, obviously, infiltrating foreign labor unions, but also to then essentially weaponize them against a essentially left-leaning... Elected, elected government, you know, elected... And yeah, and so they destabilized his regime and he was deposed. And then you had a, and there was not a free election again until 1992, almost 30 years before there was a free national election and these quasi dictatorial government was in charge. Mm -hmm. Now in in 62, this is where Eiffel comes in the picture. Jagan wrote an article in New York Times accusing Eiffel of training labor people in his country to overthrow his regime. And then mm. that's why it comes into the picture. 92, he gets elected again. When there's an election, he gets reelected again. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. The, the, the thing where I think came across Doherty, Bill Clinton uh, um, proposed Bill Doherty Jr. to be the ambassador to British Ghana obviously not having any idea what had happened there before because Jagan knew Doherty and said he was one of the people that had been involved in deposing him and he blocked him from becoming the ambassador and Clinton had to withdraw that with egg on his face. And I think as a result of that, a lot of the documents about British Guiana did get declassified and that led to this really good paper. Now I'll say this about AFSCME in 64, they got a new president a guy named Jerry Worth and he severed ties with the CIA. Mm-hmm. But again, that's that's a history they do not seem to want to talk about, even though it was in the New York Times by Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. So. Yeah, that's just remarkable. And I mean, it really also grounds so much of what also happened in British Guyana. Just more famous events, right? Like very interesting stuff. Um, let's see here. And then kind of related, um, what like... What was Eiffel doing in Brazil? I really thought this section was fascinating as well. Yeah, again, that started again with the PTTI and then rolled over into Eiffel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they uh, um, left of center government. And this guy was certainly not a Marxist. Or I don't even believe a socialist named Nigel yeah. Goulart. He would be a millionaire rancher, but he ran in the Labor Party of Brazil and had a lot of labor support and was advocating for the labor and the unions. And they decided he was too too close to the Soviet Union or might be too close to the Soviet Union at some point. I, he really seemed more non-aligned to me. But they began working to get rid of him, this, the U.S. intelligence agencies. And one of the key things they thought they would use, because they'd been so successful in British Guiana, was... Eiffel. So they brought lots of Brazilian workers to the training center in um, Virginia and spent a lot of time with them. Now, the success, they were not having much success for that. Most of these people they're bringing were not all that impressed. So they pretty much gave up on that and began working with coup plotters in Brazil. Now, there is a guy named um, Martinez, and he's in this on company business interview where they actually interview him live. 
he he was from New Mexico and a Latino background, and he went there. And he, the whole time he was there working for the PTTI, he worked to help bring about this coup, and including you know weapons exchanges and training, and um, so that that's really interesting. But now when the coup really came down, where Afeld played a really important role is that they had influence in the communication workers union, and they kept the the Communist Party called for a general strike. But they advocated these people in labor that had worked with Afeld, they advocated not to strike and to keep the communication system open, which really let the the military junta people Mm -hmm. coordinate and communicate. Oh, I didn't even think of that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was a very valuable contribution to, to this coup. And that was really a, you know, fairly brutal dictatorship. A lot of trade unionists were arrested, tortured, some murdered, mm-hmm. and labor contracts were pretty willy-nilly voided under this military coup. And I think it's fair to call that a coup against the working class. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, this is one of the things that Victor Ruther pointed out in his book, when William Doherty Jr. got back, he had been in Brazil some of this time, he said, well, yeah, a lot of the people we trained in Afeld, they were involved in this coup. These things just doesn't happen. They were involved. I have the quote in the book. And that was really, I think, a last straw for Victor that they were bragging about overthrowing a labor government in Brazil. And I think Victor was just biding his time to figure out how to get the UAW out of the AFL-CIO at that point. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely a coup against the labor government absolutely and it's just like actively undermining labor like across the world yeah yeah using labor to do that like it's very yeah i think no that's very interesting so you say that's probably one of the main things that got the ruthers to try to pull out of the afl-cio yeah, Victor went to the Labor Advisory Committee, which was still meeting, meeting as an ex officio member, and challenged him about the ethics of that and asked him what mm. they were doing. I, apparently, he didn't get a satisfactory answer. Yeah, probably not. I was hanging around a defense town one day. One day. When I thought I overheard a soldier say. Soldier say. Every tank in my camp has that UAW stamp. And I'm UAW too, I'm proud to say. It's that UAW-CIO. Make that army roll and go. Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAW-CIO. Make that army roll and go. Puts wheels on the USA. I was there when the Union came to town. Came to town. I was there when old Henry Ford went down. Ford went down. I was standing by gate four when I heard the people roar. They ain't gonna kick the auto workers around. It's that UAWCIO makes the army roll and go. Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAWCIO makes the army roll and go. Puts wheels on the USA. 
I was there on that cold December day. December day. When we heard about Pearl Harbor far away. Far away. I was down in Cadillac Square when the Union rallied there to put those plans for pleasure cars away. It's that UAWCIO makes the army roll and go, turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAWCIO makes that army roll and go, puts wheels on the USA. There'll be a union label in Berlin. In Berlin. When the union boys in uniform march in. March in. And rolling in the ranks, there'll be UAW tanks. Roll Hitler out and roll the union in. It's that UAWCIO makes that army roll and go. Turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day. It's that UAWCIO makes the army roll and go. So, in the interest of time, uh, <laughs> we will probably uh, just mention that Eiffeld was active in El Salvador. They go up to some very interesting things, as well as Chile. And I know my listeners know a fair amount about the coup in Chile, but just... Eiffeld was in the mix, like, just in general terms. I mean, what, were there any standout details for you on that? Well, you know, I they were really effective in some of the unions. Uh, the copper, they, they helped provoke a strike at a, a copper mine, which was really destabling for the economy. And I collaborated with a graduate student on this to kind of help me with that academic parts of this, the footnoting and whatnot. And the, the part on Chile was based on his undergraduate dissertation at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So that's how I met him at the AFL archives. He was doing the research on Chile. So I, I think he's got some original research in there. There was a, a lot of times referred to as a trucker strike. Mm -hmm. Well, it was kind of a trucker strike like this protest in Canada was. They, they, they really were hardly any of them truckers. It was, they had truckers associations where the owners were involved along with the workers. And that's really who was driving a lot of the, the strikes with the help of AFL. They were even funded and, and, you know, they were supported financially in these strikes. And those really helped destabilize the economy under Allende. So, um, and the other, I think the other main union that was important was the maritime union, which a lot of them were ex-naval officers. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, and they, and they were, they played a big role in this too. So, I don't, I don't know how much more we want to go into. Yeah, those. no. Because again, sure. I think the Allende, the, the coup against Allende in Chile, the Congress ordered the CIA to declassify those documents. They didn't do all of them, but they did some. And that's why a lot of people know more about what happened in Chile than in some, some other countries. Now, for some reason, they didn't have to come clean on AFELD as a CIA front at that time, mm -hmm. probably because, you know, the Meany and um, the AFL-CIO were allied with the Democrats who were in charge of this, I, I think gave them a pass and they didn't want to expose AFELD there. But um, and that's why I think Patrick's chapter uh, adds a lot of detail on what Afeld was doing in Chile. 
Yeah, for sure. And I will say by way of like enticement to get people to get the book, to check it out. Um, and this is just my little, you know, thing to throw in there. If you want to hear a little bit of some of the interesting stuff that Nicholas Deke, the banker who was shot by a mentally ill homeless lady. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Like he makes an appearance in the Chile chapter. So if you want to find out how and why, check out the book. I'll just say that. <clears throat> yeah. And that's funny because when I was having this legally vetted, the attorney said, well, what about this date company? They aren't still in business. And well, I don't know. I'll look it up. And then they, they were went bankrupt after they caught, got caught doing money laundering. And I think yeah. in the early eighties. <laughs> yeah. Just a really interesting oh. angle to all of that. Um, let's see here. So yeah, let's get into Mexico. <laughs> um, I, the thing that I love about this book is that you really do need all of that context to get to the point where you can talk about Mexico and specifically this, you know, strike that essentially turned into a, I guess, a massacre essentially. Uh, so what was going on in Mexico in the 1980s? And, you know, that's something I honestly didn't know much about, but it's very mm -hmm. important for what went on here at this Ford plant in 1989 and 1990. So, you know, 1980, as I'm sure most people know, we had uh, Reagan got elected mm -hmm. and he was really determined to be more aggressive in fighting communism. And especially Latin America, uh, he had thought, there'd been a revolution in Nicaragua in 1979, and they were really determined to put an end to that. Um, so he really had a big offensive throughout Central America, and that included supporting the Contras um, against the Nicaraguan government. They were based in Honduras, mm -hmm. and he, he appointed some very conservative people to his foreign policy team, including a guy named Menengis, who had written a paper but calling Mexico the Iran next door. And, you know, in, during the previous administration, Iran had had a revolution and overthrown the Shah, and they, was, they considered a huge foreign policy failing. They were spotting Mexico as potentially the same kind of situation. And a lot of what the Reagan administration did in both Nicaragua with the Contras and in El Salvador in supporting a far-right military oligarchy was because they were concerned about Mexico. Now, the Reagan administration had some disagreements with the CIO over how vulnerable Mexico was to destabilization. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of Reagan's supporters and acquaintances came back from Mexico telling him there's going to be a revolution there. This thing is really dangerous. Mexico was going through a really difficult period they had discovered oil and spent a lot of money based on future oil sales, you know, and social spending and infrastructure improvements. And then when the oil price collapsed in 83, they were in big trouble financially. And they had several devaluations. They had cutbacks in social spending and uh, really difficult economic times. And uh, the government, the uh, political party had, the same political party had ruled Mexico since the Mexican Revolution, the aftermath in the 20s. And that's the uh, Provisional Revolutionary Institutional Party, Institutional Revolutionary Party, PRI, we'll just call it. Mm -hmm. um, 
So they began moving towards hyper-competitive free market capitalism, deregulation, cutbacks in social spending, free trade. And as they started to make these moves, they were fairly unpopular with the uh, Mexican people. But, you know, they were still plodding along in this. And in 1985, there was a big earthquake in Mexico City, destroyed hundreds of buildings, left hundreds of thousands of people homeless, and the government completely botched the rescue attempt, uh, the recovery attempt for this. Um, yeah, there's a section in the book where you talk about how they uh, deployed essentially like the Mexican military and they went to protect the factories rather than right. like any rescue. Right. And, you know, they were supposed to stop looting. They were actually seen looting themselves in mm. the army. And the government told the U.S. they didn't need any help. They had it under control. And so I read a lot of declassified CIA papers. This was the one they were completely wrong about. Usually they're pretty accurate about what the situation is. This they said, they, they wrote one about comparing the Mexican earthquake to the Nicaraguan earthquake, which they considered that had something to do with the 79 revolution there, the mishandling yeah. by Somoza of that. But they said, yeah, they, the PRI is doing a good job here. we don't see any problem even though they were being warned by a lot of their informants that self-help groups were arising because the government had done so badly and organizing politically and this Mm. is something completely new and they warned the cia they say yeah no no, this is going to blow away this will be nothing well it turns out it didn't those self-help groups and you know the students and leftists began organizing around earthquake issues too and they gained a lot of momentum. And uh, in the 1988 election, a guy named Cuauhtémoc Cardenas, whose father had been a famous general in the Mexican Revolution and a president, very popular populist president of Mexico, ran against the PRI's candidate in the 1988 election. And he had the support of this movement that had arisen after the earthquake. And that election was was quite a deal. It was for the first time they were going to keep track of the vote tabs on a computer system, which they had set up just to show the places where they were winning, where Salinas, the, the PRA candidate, was winning. But they got something got goofed up, and the opposition party saw the results. They were ahead everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when that became known, that computer system got shut down. So it's kind of a famous event in Mexican history saying that the system crashed, not meaning that necessarily the computer <laughs> system, but the political system. So there was widespread fraud. Unquestionably in that, Cardenas probably won. Only 45% of the ballots were ever counted. And there were a lot of them found thrown away, burned, violence at the polling stations. The, they had the military seize the ballot boxes. And they had a vote in Congress whether to certify the Salinas as the winner, which you know the government claimed he was. And by you know a ten vote margin out of like five hundred votes, they voted to uh, give the election to Salinas. And then the ballot boxes several years later, they the Congress voted to burn. So we you know, there's no no recounts. <laughs> <laughs> so that I think startled both the newly 
elected Bush administration and the CIA, which had been saying there's really not that big a problem in Mexico is what they'd been saying. They said Reagan was overreacting. That put everybody on high alert. And within a few weeks of that election being certified for Salinas, the, the Bush administration, or still Reagan was still in office then, they made some changes. They sent a new ambassador to Mexico, and that is John D. Negroponte, and which maybe, do you people know who he was? Uh, I think some of them will. And can I just also add, I really love this section, especially with Negroponte. And like, your book basically threads the needle between like Iran-Contra ghouls and like the people who did NAFTA. Yeah. In a lot of cases, they were either literally the same people or like working hand in hand. Like this was like exquisite, this section. Yeah, no, and I, I that was an eye-opener for me too. I, I started getting a little nervous when I saw that because when I finally got the declassified State Department cables. So Negroponte had been a, a fixture in U.S. foreign policy for a long time. He was an aide to Kissinger and talked Kissinger into 19, in 1970 into rejecting the proposal for peace with North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front as a sellout of South Vietnam. And so, and Kissinger agreed with him, and but ended up two years later, after a bunch more bloodshed and bombing, agreeing to the same terms uh, mm. for settlement. Um, maybe it was 74, probably. Uh, but in any case, he was upset with Negroponte and assigned him to a, a out of the way post and deep in, I don't know, Uruguay or somewhere, some minor post in Latin America. But when Reagan came in, he pulled him out and put him in Honduras. And Honduras was such an important country because that was the staging grounds for the Contras. Now the US Congress had voted not to fund the Congress and prevented funding of the Contras. So that's how we got Iran-Contra with Ollie North and these guys scrambling around trying to find ways to support the Contra. What Negroponte did, or at least what the press accused him of doing, was getting the Honduras government to fund the Contras, and then they would be paid back with U.S. aid, extensive U.S. aid. U.S. aid went way up. Uh, the U.S. press also accused Negroponte, who was the ambassador in Honduras, of using a CIA back channel with Washington in order to avoid being detected what they were doing to support the Contras. So anyway, in 1988, after the Salinas election, and they knew he was in political trouble, Negroponte became the ambassador. Now, another guy who he called a close friend in an interview became the CIA station chief, and his name was Vincent Shields. And he, he has somewhat of a history and in national intelligence, too. Because Negroponte then went on after his assignment in Mexico, just to fill people in, he became the uh, UN ambassador when they were arguing for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Then he became the ambassador to Iraq after the U.S. invasion. And then he became the first director of national intelligence in 2005. And that's why a lot of, and when he went through that confirmation hearing, a lot of this material came out about his past in Honduras and Mexico. Well, not so much Mexico, Honduras. So anyway, he's in Mexico with his Vincent Shields. And then as the deputy chief of mission, there was another guy who'd been in Honduras called uh, Robert Pastorino. So as you were saying, and this was fascinating to me, Pastorino had been in the National Security Council for Reagan as a chief advisor for Latin America, he wrote the first conceptual draft of NAFTA. 
And Negroponte claimed his biggest accomplishment while he was ambassador in Mexico was facilitating negotiations for H. Bush and Salinas for the NAFTA agreement. So yeah, so you have NAFTA being very closely linked to the national security community here, uh, which was news to me, but I, I really believe it, it, it was, and that's where it was born and the, and the ideas of national security. It's just like staggering, like the implications of this book, like it's crazy. Like I'm really like, um, like legitimately people should read this book. Um, if you kind of almost, and maybe you can speak on this better, uh, but like NAFTA of course was not, a, <laughs> it was really harsh on the US labor movement. And like, if you view NAFTA as essentially almost like a theft then it makes sense that it would be carried out by essentially like government killers. I don't know. Can you speak on like maybe just the U.S. aspect of NAFTA, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and after and I say, I never know how much people of your generation, it, it was a devastating thing for my generation mm-hmm. to see all these factories close. I mean, no one really kept track of that because it wasn't anybody's interest how many of them moved operations to Mexico or China mm-hmm. or how many went bankrupt because they didn't move. But it had a devastating impact on the working class and unionization. So, I mean, if you look Wisconsin is where I live now, what happened there? I mean, it used to be quite a manufacturing state. Yeah, I, I saw one reference that you know, sometime in the 2016 election that the states that had lost the most middle-class jobs in the previous decade were Ohio and Wisconsin. Well, these mm-hmm. were manufacturing jobs. Uh, you know, we had big GM plant closed and Chrysler engine plant closed. And so you lose all those union members who are out scrambling around trying to find a way to make a living. And then they look at the public employees. Well, they've got pensions, they've got health care. And you have a guy like Scott Walker come along and say, we need to get rid of these public employee unions. And he passed Act 10, which it doesn't officially outline, but it puts up so many hurdles. It really almost makes public employee unions impossible. So you got the manufacturing unions gone. You got the public employees union gone. So you got the building trades unions left, building construction states. But, you know, they're on the defensive now. They've got hardly any allies. And they come after them trying to get rid of prevailing wage legislation in the state of Wisconsin for them. So Mm -hmm. as a microcosm of how this deindustrialization, which there's no better focus for it than NAFTA, you see where it led. And, you know, when I I started writing this in 2016, I mean, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania. Michigan and Wisconsin by 100,000 votes total. And he campaigned against NAFTA. He really had no idea what he was talking about, but he really hit a note with bitter people about what had happened to those manufacturing jobs. And I think it was enough to get him elected because he campaigned against NAFTA. Nationally, the Democrats would never do that. I mean, there's individual legislatures who were very good, but they never, they left that to him. And I think that's what got him elected. So yeah, NAFTA was a, a big deal. Yeah, no, that is very, very interesting. Like, oh man, um, let's see here. So all of this is the context, right? To get to uh, the point of this specific uh, factory strike, right? 
Well, one more thing I want to get into is the shift of auto companies pre-NAFTA to Mexico. Mm. So, you know, in the, by 1980, you know, Reagan had opened up the market to the Japanese competition and they were really eating U.S. auto companies lunch. I mean, there's, I go into this somewhat, how this developed in Japan and what their advantages were a little bit, but the way that the U.S. auto companies responded to that challenge was to begin to move their operations in Mexico to take advantage of the super cheap labor and get a leg up there. So GM was the first one to really start production down there. They built a new plant. They took a 106-day strike from the Mexican Union, the CTM local there, because they wanted to separate the plants into different unions. 106-day strike. So that's quite a story that I don't know a lot about. But by 2010, one out of every four cars imported to the U.S. was assembled in Mexico. And in 2018, when I started working on this, they're making around 250 an hour. It doesn't include benefits, but uh, you know, a, a U.S. automaker was making 28 to 30 dollars with fully paid healthcare pensions, and that that was uh, a, a big deal. And this started before NAFTA, because Ford was the last of the big three to go there, but they had two new plants by '85 and this plant in Mexico City, outside of Mexico City called Cuatilan. And that's the, the focus really of the story here in the book. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point because it really was, yeah, before NAFTA technically, or like the whole thing is a general trend yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so we're talking about uh, this particular uh, factory called uh, Cuatilan. And it it's... It's really interesting because you lay out the different factions where there's like a, you know, a main union, uh, like you said, I believe it's the uh, CTM, the Confederation of Mexican Workers. Yeah, that is a government aligned union. Yes. Um, And then there's the Partido Revolucionario de los Trabajadores, the PRT, which they're essentially a left wing political group, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they started, I, how much time have we got here? We probably don't have time to go into the student yeah, movement yeah. in Mexico in 1968, but that's where they had their roots. Yeah. And uh, they were organizing in um, the working class in Mexico. And for very good reasons, they were pretty underground. I mean, it was a dangerous, a dangerous thing to organize against the government at that time. But they had had great success in the 1980s in this Ford Cotillion plant for just advocating things like grievances, union meetings, uh, union officials responding to what the workers wanted. Now, and there, as I talked about earlier, the economic situation was really bad. There's a great deal of inflation because of the devaluation of the peso and all the cutbacks. Uh, In 87, Ford began negotiating a new contract with the CTM. Now, the problem is the, the, the sales, this plant in Mexico City produced largely for the domestic market in Mexico. The new new plants in northern Mexico were all exporting to the U.S. Mm. So the sales in Mexico were way down. They had a lot of extra workers. Um, the, the CTM came up with a plan with Ford that they would call a strike because Ford would not agree to the 27% wage increase the government had recommended. 
Ford wouldn't match that. They, the CTM called a strike, but Ford paid half their wages while they were on strike. So when I looked at the CIA documents and strikes in Mexico, it doesn't show up because it really wasn't a strike. It was a lay, subsidized layoff. Now, the problem with this strategy in the CTM in which these activists and the PTR, PRT had said it was that after three months in Mexico, if you're on strike, the employer can terminate the labor agreement. And that's what they did. They actually waited four months, uh, Ford did, and terminated the labor agreement. It means everybody's fired. Yeah. So the government required them to, to, to get a new contract, and it would have to be approved before they could implement it. So they got it enforced. Basically, people had been out in the street by, I don't know, five, six months by that time at half pay. They didn't really understand what everything that was in this agreement. In the early 80s, the CTM had agreed to, which what I say was a two-tier wage scale. They didn't call it that, but new hires would receive way less um, money. So when they finally rehired everyone after it was ratified, it amounted to a 40% benefit and wage cut to what the workers had been making. And mm -hmm. 600 people were never called back. They, they didn't know that too at the time they ratified it. So just like workers anywhere in the world would be with that kind of agreement shoved down their throat, they were angry. Mm -hmm. And um, the new executive board was composed entirely of PRT members or their supporters. There are other left political parties active at the time, but they were the most successful. And I, I, I think they were some brilliant organizers, some of the best organizing I've ever read about in an auto plant by this group. So they, they had uh, had great success. They started having union meetings. They started doing grievances. They led a number of work stoppages over issues and they really gained a reputation throughout Mexico for what they were doing at this plant. Mm -hmm. Now, the CTM during the strike, the head of that Ford CTM. So they had three Ford plants in Mexico and they all had different contracts, but they all had, were in a Ford CTM union. And the head of that union got removed by the head of the CTM. And they put another young guy in his twenties was appointed the general secretary of the Ford CTM. And his name was Hector Urarte. So he was up for election in July of 89. And these dissidents at the Ford plant in Mexico planned to run against him. And just the way the size of their plant compared to the two new plants who were just starting up, they were quite certain that they would win that election just based on the size of these plants. And about four weeks before that election, Ford fired four of the six executive committee members, everyone who would have been able to oppose Urarte. So Urarte basically went unopposed and was reelected head of the CTM and their leaders were all fired. So that really set off a new round of struggle. They, they formed something called the Ford Workers Democratic Movement. They did hunger strikes, protest marches, and these fired executive committee members continued to, to run the local. So the next big issue that came along, when Irarte's election came up, Ford does a profit sharing in the spring. And to make it seem bigger and try to make people happier with the status quo, they did not withhold taxes from the profit sharing. But of course, no one told the workers that. So when December came, 
and the, and they were supposed to get a Christmas bonus and it just disappeared. It all went to taxes. Some people got no checks at all because all the money went to taxes. So th there was a walkout. Uh, they walked out in the street. This is right before Christmas elected a commission of their own to negotiate with Ford and the CTN because the Ford was not obligated to negotiate on these issues with the local people. They only had to negotiate with the, the CTM, the, the mm -hmm. Ford CTM. Um, so that they, they'd walked out before Christmas. So then they have a Christmas shutdown, just like we do here in the U S they returned after Christmas and one of the things that the leaders of the union did was they they got they went and leafleted the plant on Friday, January 5th, telling people to come to a meeting that the head of the CTM, Fidel Velasquez, had agreed to. And while they were leafleting, they were kidnapped. A bunch of the leaders were kidnapped by an armed group. Jeez. Unknown who they, exactly these people were. I have theories, but we don't know. But um, when they found about it in the plant, some of the other people organized a sit-down strike over their captured leaders, and they stopped production. Mm -hmm. By the end of the day, all these leaders who'd been kidnapped were released at the police station. And um, so they went home for the weekend, and everyone was planning going back to work on Monday, January 8th. So Sunday evening, the leader got messages from inside the plant that there were strange things going on. There were people coming into the plant asking for and getting Ford jackets to wear and Ford ID badges. Um, so they expected trouble. So they had kind of worked out a plan of what to do on Monday morning, these leaders on Sunday evening. So when they got to work on Monday, January 8th, the, the leaders who had led the the work stoppage inside the plant on Friday had notices on their lockers telling them there's a coverall lockers and there were in the Ford plant in the US. The first thing you do when you go into work is you go to your coverall locker, unlock it, pull out a pair of coveralls. There's were locks that you need to go to this spot and get a new key. We've changed your lock. Well, none of them did. They went to their work spot. When they got there, there were like 300 or so golpeadores is what the press called them. Thugs. Mm -hmm. uh, they had clubs. They had, some of them had firearms. There were five different buildings and they had organized themselves to the degree that they sent a, a group to each of the five plants and left another group at the door to cover their retreat. And they began intimidating the workers and telling them to get back to work. Now, what I believe happened from reading all the things I was able to get, Ford had planned on firing these 10 people. That's why they had the notices in their coverall locker. And they called in the police to remove these guys from the plant. Now, an extra legal organization heard about this and sent in these 300 golpeadores to stop another work stoppage is what I believe they were there for. Um, it didn't work because they were confronted by the workers who picked up tools and challenged them. And these thugs opened fire and 10 people were shot. One of them eventually died and they drove them out of the plant. And, you know, they, they issued some demands because, you know, they didn't know what had happened there. They thought their lives were in danger. They decided to occupy the plant until their demands were met for rehiring the executive committee. They asked for pay for that, for that December shortage. Um, they asked for a national democratic convention of the CTM to address issues of union democracy and the, the government union. What, 
what always really gets me is how absolutely reasonable these demands are too. It's like truly not like crazy stuff they're asking. Things we take for granted in the U.S. Yeah. Basically. I mean, not to have uh, thugs come in your plant and attack you and uh, shoot you down for resisting on your own work site. So they, they held the plant for two weeks, occupied it. And I got the Department of State cables where you can see all the maneuvering that's going on between Ford, the Mexican government, and the CTM. Mm-hmm. And they're all colluding how to bring this thing to an end. Because as Negroponte said in one of his cables, this strike is a direct challenge to the pro-business policies of the Salinas administration. This is serious stuff. And it, it was. I mean, if you look at this was a group that was opposed to NAFTA because they thought it gave corporations too much control of Mexico. Uh, this is a group that is abrogating things for now that even the U.S. government recognizes are necessary. And that is a democratic, militant, independent trade union to raise wages in Mexico. And that's really all they were ever asking for. So they held the plant for two weeks and then were driven out by 2000 police. But then they continued the strike for another couple months as Ford fired again, everybody who hadn't returned to work after a few weeks, but they didn't get enough people back to run the plant. So they finally entered into negotiations with the local people and agreed to a settlement. They didn't really have much to go on. They'd been out in the street for months and they finally agreed to settlement that resulted in another 570 people being fired. And so again, they took out all the activists with that firing. Um, but they finally were not really able to get work up and running again until August. And this had started in January. Um, now the 570 fired people did get three months severance pay because they continued the struggle. They did a, a nude end in the labor department in Mexico. They stripped their clothes off and said, oh, really? they've been left naked by the CTM. And they finally got the press to cover them. The press, that's a whole nother subject of how they mm-hmm. covered this. But I have cables from the embassy that says the government was able to force coverage of this off the front pages. And I, that, that did happen. But anyway, they got a lot of coverage for that. So they did get three months pay. Um, but, you know, this is a case where they really needed support from U.S. unions. And they didn't have it. <laughs> Just yeah. the because I trace Eiffel's involvement with this on a separate thread on mm-hmm. the story, too. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit about what, like, what, what, like, what was it like like you said, being there, you know, as an auto worker and hearing about this and then just not, you know. Yeah, I mean, when we heard about it in our plants, I mean, this is something that we'd not heard in our lifetime, the thugs coming into a plant and shooting dissident workers. Um, It's really outside the scope of what we thought was tolerable with Ford. And our, our local, and there was another one in Kansas City, there were some in Michigan, and, I, you know, as I've written this, I ran into a lot of people who did hear about this, but, you know, on the total numbers of people, it's pretty small, but yeah. uh, the, the building chairman, the bargaining chairman of our local gave a speech at a quality award ceremony at our plant in St. Paul, and which 
the press was there and came to cover this thing. And he said, well, you know, there's blood in the floor in that factory in Mexico. And that really set off alarms with Ford because um, they did not want to have to defend there. And they still have never publicly commented on what happened here. Uh, they did have a meeting with this bargaining chairman and told him we were not involved in this. We didn't give him uniforms and we didn't pay him. Now, from what I see, what they said to the embassy, I believe that is true. I think they had vaguely agreed to some people coming in to talk, but they did not recognize what happened. Because you can see what they said to the em embassy. They told the emb emb embassy that this was uh, Revolutionary Workers Party people come into the plant. Well, if they bothered to read the paper that day, they would have known that really wasn't true. And a few days later, they changed their story to this was an inter-union Mexican dispute. But the CTM never took any responsibility for it. I mean, some of their people were involved, I think, pretty certainly, but they they held a press conference demanding an investigation of a gangster that the late, the newspaper said was in charge of this. And they went to the Mexican Congress and they denied their involvement. They said, there's other people that, that do these kind of things. It's not us. Well, I, I think it was, this was a CIA action. I think the gangster was a CIA contract agent. And after this failed and drew a lot of publicity, he was assassinated several months later. That's right. Fascinating. Oh, and then like you get people like Victor Marchetti or Philip Agee who talk about how they do have plans to terminate assets if right. certain things go sideways, right? Like, right. Yeah. Again, in that uh, on company business documentary, they have an interview with him where he says that. Let's see here. Maybe... We could just real quick, I can list off a few of the people who uh, met unfortunate ends in the course of this story. Um, for example, there's Serafino Romaldi, who I think you said, or the book says that like he had a peculiar heart attack at an interesting juncture in his career. Uh, Walter Ruther, of course, Nicholas Deke, who we talked about, uh, several people from like the El Salvador chapter. Of course, there's the Mexican workers, unfortunately. Um, there's the the head of the gang of thugs. He was killed. I don't think you frame it this way, but then um, in the fallout of the Ford attack, uh, there's Senator Wellstone, right? Who really stood up and tried to like get to the bottom of this I, I don't think that one was an assassination, but, uh, you know. I, uh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he, yeah, he died of a, in a plane crash, for sure. 2002, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's just, like, an inordinate number of people around this whole story who end up dead. Uh, very interesting stuff. And, and that's true. And, you know, actually, the first one I really looked at was Ruth. And I said, boy, you're doing an article a book or an article about the CIA, you don't need to have a bunch of assassination theories. It's just going to make you look like you're a, yeah. you know, a loose cannon, but I, there's just no way I couldn't good conscience leave these things out. I mean, I had good sources and I really tried to find some other explanation for some of there. There isn't. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
So I would just say, you know, amazing book, like truly, I think people should read it. Um, but for you, I mean, what does this say about the AFL CIO and, you know, like what's, what's your take on this legacy, I guess? Well, you know, I, I think it's really important. I mean, I understand. I know a lot of people won't even talk to me once I went down this path mm-hmm. and they know what I was researching because a lot of people feel, well, you know, if you say something bad about labor, it's going to be used against labor and yeah. just better leave it in the past and cover it up. I, I think labor is having a lot of problems. That has not been a successful strategy. And the problem with that is if things never get acknowledged, never get accounted for, responsibility never gets assigned, and they never get corrected. So as hard as this is, the AFL-CIO really needs to face up to this. And I I think they should do three things. Mm -hmm. One is open up the AFL files. The George Meany Archives is very happy to organize and do that. They need to get permission from the AFL-CIO to do that. And their international affairs files, the international affairs department files, probably have more readily usable information. Those need to be opened up to members and researchers. Number two is they really need to assign a commission to go through these and give mm-hmm. an explanation to the affiliate unions what happened here. Because what, who was Lane Kirkland? What was he doing? What were we doing during the Cold War? They need to come up with some answers on their own. And I think something they can do right away and they need to do is there's a, a regular or annual or biannual award for human rights called the Kirkland Meany Human Rights Award. That needs to come to an end. That is a mockery of history. There's got to be hundreds, if not thousands, of dedicated unionists who really worked for human rights, and they they need to change the name of that award. So that's what I think they need to do, and and what unions overall need to do is get the moral high ground back. And you don't not keep the ethical and moral high ground with this track record, which you're doing your best to cover up. So that, that would be my recommendation, sir. And then for my listeners, many of whom, unfortunately, are not, I don't think, union affiliated, like, how can, like, my average listener, maybe a little bit younger than me, like, how can they support the labor movement and get involved in general? Well, I mean, if they're at a place, you know, that is a work site that needs to be union, I mean, there's a lot of places that are attempting to unionize, places like Starbucks, um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of places which you never expected, but there really needs, that's really what needs to happen with labor is organizing more members. It's not surprising that a lot of your listeners aren't union members because unions only represent about 6% of the private workforce in the country. So, and you can always, I mean, if you see a strike or a labor event, people who are out in picket lines always love to have people stop by and talk to them and offer them encouragement and support. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, when it comes to political process, support candidates who support unions. Uh, you know, it's not always the easiest to find, but uh, those are some of the things that people can do. Thank you very much, uh, both for taking the time out to talk to me today and also for writing this book, which I genuinely think is important uh, for sure. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Certainly anytime you want to come back, whether it's an article or another book or something, or just 
in general, you know, you're always welcome back on the show. Well, thank you very much. I've got your email address, so I'll just throw you in my email group nowadays. Thank you. 